everyone and welcome back to butter with that a podcast where some friends from philly get together to talk about all things movies i'm dave and i'm joined as always by connor christine and sam good to see all of you guys we are rounding out our recent theme uh thuds and duds movies that uh either we were drawn to at a younger age and have reevaluated and found them to be uh, unsatisfactory, let's say, or movies that we thought uh, on first viewing weren't very good and have for some reason begrudgingly dragged ourselves through again. Today we are talking about kind of a doozy that uh, I think we've been looking forward to and is, I think, a pretty reasonable conclusion for this theme. But before we get into that, just wanted to touch base with everybody, see how everyone's doing and see if anything has caught your eye lately as far as movies. So not really movies to report, but Apple Plus recently is having a promotion where you can get three free months. And so um, Alyssa and I, with some friends, binge-watched the first season of Ted Lasso in like two days. Uh, that's Jason Sudeikis' show. It's a hard Sudeikis's, a weird word to say. His show on Apple Plus absolutely, I think, lives up to the hype. Hilarious, heartwarming, very dramedy in like the best way. Um, and I just can't recommend it enough. Uh, we started a few episodes of season two, already liking season two, so excited for to finish that and then for season three to come out sometime this year. Very nice. Yeah, looking forward to revisiting Tragedy of Macbeth through that service because I know that to be on there. Uh, also on there is Chris Evans's show, Defending Jacob. Connor, please watch it. I know no one else that has seen it. <laughs> I would love to chat about it one day. But speaking of things that I probably should have watched and I just never did, and then it became too late. So I never watched The Punisher, and now all Netflix Marvel shows are on Disney+. And um, <laughs> I really like it. I knew, And I knew that I would, but I just... John Bernthal as uh, Frank Castle makes a lot of sense. Very good show. Really love how brutal it is. Yeah, I really liked uh, the first season of that as well. I haven't watched the second season, but that's really um, good casting. Overall, I think all the Marvel, pretty much all the Marvel Netflix shows had really good casting. And he was awesome in season two of Daredevil, which I think is the best season of any Marvel Netflix stuff, which I know not everybody shares that opinion, but I really love Daredevil season two. I think the most out of all of the seasons of Marvel Netflix. So in preparation for this episode, I was like, surely... I've watched other movies besides the one I'm about to say, because when I thought through it, I was like, holy shit, the Brady Bunch movie is the only movie (laughs) aside from the movie we are speaking about today that I have watched since our last recording. It was a friend who just demanded that a group of us watch it. It was because um, I I have seen it, but like in ch- it's like one of those like always on Comedy Central kind of things, and uh, there are parts of it that definitely don't hold up, and then there are parts of it that like are still funny. And so I was like, okay, I love this. I don't think I'd fully put together the fact that the Brady Bunch in the Brady Bunch movie are still stuck in their seventies era, but mm-hmm. it's like the mid nineties, which makes it really fun and. I was I was chuckling most of the movie, so I'd say you know give it a fun rewatch. 
I don't think I could have possibly predicted that to be the movie that you were going to say that you watched. I don't think I, think I, could, given... have, I, don't think I could have possibly predicted watching that movie, but it was just like in a text thread, a friend was just like, Brady Bunch movie tonight? I was like, uh, okay, whatever. <laughs> nice. So some interesting things in the mix. Uh, an interesting thing that we have in the mix tonight uh, or today, this morning, uh, this afternoon, this uh, this this current time that you're, you're listening to the show. We are, as we said, rounding out our thuds and duds theme, and that would be with my choice, the conclusion uh, that it's 1999's American Beauty, uh, film directed by Sam Mendes, written by Alan Ball, stars actors uh, Kevin Spacey, Annette Bening, Thora Birch, Wes Bentley, Mina Suvari, Peter Gallagher, Allison Jenny, Chris Cooper, uh, returning to the pod, and more. I think most people are probably familiar with this movie and familiar with what it involves, but I suppose a succinct summary because I don't really care to, I, I can't be objective enough to, to summarize this, I don't think. So I'm just going to steal this from IMDP. Uh, a summary for this unfamiliar is a sexually frustrated suburban father has a midlife crisis after becoming infatuated with his daughter's best friend. Uh, and that summary is as succinct as that. I think the movie thinks it gets into an awful lot more uh, and whether or not it does uh, or does so successfully, we will get into at the time this movie came out, it was hugely popular. It was uh, won several Academy Awards and was kind of one of the more decorated films of that year. Uh, that year, by the way, 1999, which was a crazy year for cinema. But this one seemed to have come out on top and uh, for reasons that we'll explore later on. But as far as our individual experiences with it, how did we first encounter American Beauty? I think this is not anyone's first time seeing this, right? Now getting getting yeah head shakes all around because yeah it was an extremely popular movie so I'm sure a lot of us did see it around the era uh, that it was released but having seen it at that time uh, and if you would be so kind as to share your memories to that effect uh, how does that compare or contrast with your experience revisiting it? So I guess I watched it for the first time maybe like ten years ago or maybe more recently. I think it was one of the things where I was like, oh, I've never seen American Beauty, so I'll watch it. And I like, I like really can't remember what I thought about it. I was sort of like, huh, okay. That makes, like, I guess it was now, I guess viewing it that first time was like, okay, this is where all these references come from the plastic bag reference, people's obsession with Wes Bentley. And I was like, oh, this is like, all coming together, but I don't think I've really had a fully formed sort of evaluation of it. In preparation for this podcast and rewatching it, I now have a full evaluation <laughs> of what I think about <laughs> it, which we'll save for the conversation. But I, I was intrigued that I couldn't honestly remember what I had thought about it aside from, okay, it's putting all the like cultural reference puzzle pieces together in my mind having watched it for the first time. Okay. Yeah, I, I watched American Beauty for the first time in college. I think it was like sophomore year. And I didn't really know a whole lot about it. The The poster and like DVD covers just feel like iconic from like Blockbuster, like Hollywood video. Like I feel like it was always, like I was aware of it, but not really know what it's about. It's one of our, you know, one of my friends was one of her favorite movies of all time. Mm -hmm. if not her favorite movie of all time. 
And what so when during that first viewing, and like that was the assumption, you know, the, the context going into it of why she wanted to show it to us. And I just remember being so horribly bored and so horribly like, what is this? Like, um, I think I was at the height of my like, I hate anything that's pretentious kind of like mindset while also being incredibly pretentious at the same time. Um, a self-defeating <laughs> argument there. Exactly. And so I remember, but I, I, I didn't say a whole lot because I didn't want to hurt her feelings. Uh, we have since talked about American beauty in recent years um, and thoughts have changed for sure. So I think everything I thought was just reaffirmed by the second viewing as somebody who's been doing a movie podcast for a while and has definitely thinks more critically about films than God, almost 10 years ago now. Um, so excited to dig in but can't say the second viewing improved almost anything from the first viewing. Gotcha. And the first viewing being a, a general summary of having been bored. Uh, were, were you, would you say you were bored this time? Did that experience change or did you find it still pretty boring? I guess I was like waiting for the parts that were explosive mm. or like the big emotion parts. Okay. I get it. I get it. But I was surprised. I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll walk what I said back a little bit. There were some scenes that surprised me that were I, I actually thought were kind of funny or that enjoyed. So I think I'm being a little too hard right up front. But overall, um, still not a watch I would recommend. But I think I appreciate some moments now. Okay. And uh, Sam, this is a revisit for you. How, what was your connection to it originally and how did you feel about it now? Uh, Similar to Connor, I saw this for the first time in college. My friend group was very, like, film buff-esque and very into the super artistic films, I guess, of this ilk. And I remember watching it and being like, okay. And, like, it passed through my eyeballs, and then I immediately moved on with my life. And on this watch, the moment Kevin Spacey opens his mouth he says one word I was immediately put into fight or flight and for me that is always fight so I was ready to like throw hands just immediately <laughs> and I, and it's definitely because like I I know what this movie is about and um it's absolute fucking garbage but um movies don't tend to do that to me often where they they tap into my fight or flight <laughs> so i was surprised by that interesting an interesting revisit and interesting to hear all of you guys say that you'd first seen it in college i i do remember seeing this shortly after its release i didn't see it in theaters but it was kind of right on the heels of its release uh, i think it was like 12 or 13 at the time and at the time uh i found it to be interesting and layered in ways that i no longer do uh i thought it was pretty a pretty insightful satire that covers a lot of ground and i disagree with my former self in that regard i think uh, ultimately it winds up being a very cynical uh self self-styled satire that is a dramedy that arrives at a very um let's let's say a, an attempt at a very profound ending that i think is uh, wholly unearned um, and kind of violates the spirit of a good biting satire to begin with. So um, before going into this, I do just want to say that I know a lot of people do like this movie. It's okay to like a movie, and it is 
uh, okay to acknowledge that this movie is a satire because I know that if, if we're going to get any feedback from people that like it, they're going to try to suggest, as so many people have in my experience, that, well, you don't get it because you're not appreciating it as a satire. And I do understand that it's a satire. I just don't think it is a good one. So on the whole, I did really, this movie did have a, a like a quietly special place in my heart for maybe like two years when I was very young and now uh, definitely does not. I don't really have a structure or safety net for this episode. I don't think that it makes sense for us to go through this beat by beat. I think it, we can just dive in and talk about the movie. Um, but in the interest of, you know, fairness or a challenge, uh, what would be something that going around the horn that we all like about this movie? As, as much as Kevin Spacey is not a great person, to put it mildly, um, I think he actually gives like a pretty good performance for the material given um i think especially i think it, it definitely grates on me this kind of like the movie feels sort of like monotone in a lot of ways until like it erupt you know, moments of eruption um but i really like the moments where he's quit his job and then he goes like the fast food scenes like i think all that was like pretty funny and just i think he plays that really well like i'm just in like an office space kind of way like just checked out. I'm just going to do whatever. Dave, we were talking a little bit about uh, similarities between like Office Space and American Beauty. Oh so yeah, we'll just... be talking about that later. Yeah. So I think for as much as I don't want to give Kevin Spacey credit for like anything, that makes me feel kind of icky inside. He's actually, I think, like a standout in a movie that I think with many other people, actors would have been incredibly like dull. I tend to agree. I think, you know, the... um the character is pretty reprehensible, as we'll cover, uh, even though they're painted as perhaps the only sympathetic character in this film. And Spacey, as we know, is uh, not a very sympathetic person. There's a, yeah, a lot of a lot of dark material that uh, that's pretty well established and pretty well covered. So we're, we won't delve into it too much here. But if you know, you know, and it's bad. That having been said, he he breathes life into this character in a way that does move the movie along that I can't imagine anyone else being able to pull off. I think Spacey's acting on the whole in a lot of movies is pretty good, but uh, you know, that happens to be unfortunate. Uh, I also will. Yeah. Uh, agree for the most part that when I was trying to think about like, when you just asked this question, like what was one good thing I could point to and like Connor and what you've touched on Dave, I didn't hate Spacey's performance. I think that issues I had with moments was just, just went down, like came down to just like terrible screenwriting. There's some moments mm -hmm. that are genuinely funny. And then some moments that is just like really, really weak and just uninventive writing. But I think Spacey, for the most part, gives us a character that is intriguing because, as you've mentioned, Dave, has some reprehensible aspects to his behavior and his character, but is performed in a way you're like, hmm, okay, in the context and framework of a satire, I'm intrigued by this situation somewhat and I'll, I'll I'll be interested to see how these competing personalities and these characters play out. I'd say quickly, really just a side note, if you're interested in that kind of thing, then check out Todd Solondz's happiness, which is a big ask because that movie is fucked up 
And uh, it does get into some of the darker things that this movie covers uh, even more explicitly, but sticks to landing as a very dark satire because everyone is performing it well and it's keenly self-aware of its the nature of what it's doing as opposed to something like this. But um, sorry, go ahead. No, I got to sit with like answering your question about what I enjoyed because I definitely had some chuckle moments. I think this is not answering your question, but I think the biggest letdown for me is I was like, oh, well, I know Annette Benning is in this and I, I always love everything she does. And I think she makes the most of the character, but like her character is just so unfortunately late nineties, like, I don't know, sort of mother comedy, like sort of hysterical mother comedy. I don't know. It's just, it's like, a sad, it just made me sad watching it. And I was like, this is not what I want for Annette Benning. And I know that's her, that's the character, but like, I wanted more, I don't know. I don't, I don't really have a fully fleshed out idea around her. So you can come back to me, but I'm still, I'm still sort of thinking about this movie. Yeah. I can't speak to what Benning was going for, but I suspect that it was probably more a problem of direction and in terms of having her perform a caricature rather than a character. And I love wild characters that can veer into caricature, but I think in the framework of a movie that's supposed to be, you know, groundbreaking, serious satire, like I I thought it didn't do her character justice. Yeah. And it comes down to writing and bad direction. Yeah. Honestly, I I feel like I too am still wrapping my head around this movie, mostly because I think my brain likes to torture me because I I really could just leave it. I wish I could. But the scene that I that has stayed with me that I've been thinking about the most is, you know, at the very end when the big thing, when the big moment happens and you so, you know, the audience is left to, to deal with it. And then we catch up with every character moments before it happens. And then, you know, that you explicitly not after as we'll cover. Yeah. Right. And only up to the gunshot. I actually really liked that this time around. And then the only other thing that I liked about this movie is how much I thought about not another teen movie. Oh, right. That, that movie is not really my sense of humor. However, I think that it is funny. And so much of watching this, I'm like, you know what? Not another teen movie. They really knew what they were doing and how they were making fun of this movie. Good for them. Yeah. That movie dug its heels in pretty good. As far as parody goes uh, across the, across all boards, they really kind of bring in a lot and do a lot with it, which is, that's one of the better, like, not another or, like, something movie movies, I would say. I'd say really quickly that I think that this is a very well shot movie. That I think that, uh, though it is a little bit monotonous, Connor, as you've suggested, not only in its its kind of, like, plotting tone a lot of the time, but in terms of the environments and, like, the saturation with which they're depicted or not depicted and things like that, it's it, it, it does feel a little monochromatic. Although I think that that does suit what this thought it was and was going for. I agree. There are some interesting shots, but once again, it the movie is so satisfied with its achievements or what it deems to be its achievements that it dilutes a good thing. It The overuse of framing devices with the fucking camcorder and the TV mm. and then the switching from 
sort of first person or like, I don't know, I don't really have the vocabulary to describe it, but are you watching, you know, the neighbor's camcorder or you have audience and it kind of plays with audience and voyeurism and it's like, okay, these are interesting ideas, but like it overuses those techniques where by the end, it's just like, ah, the, I thought the best shots are like of like curtains and shit. Like there's some really beautiful moments where a character will get in frame in front of like a curtain and then it'll, a character will move out of frame. The curtain will still be moving. Some of that was interesting, but this, this, there are some that was just like, I, I don't know whether those were screenplay choices. So that would be Alan Ball writing. Okay, then we cut to Wes Bentley looking through the camcorder, the reflection of Thora Birch in the TV, or whether those were Sam Mendes choices. Be like, mm, as a director, I've got some really great ideas for how to play with uh, sort of optics and voyeur, you know, the voyeur and the audience and all that. I, yeah, it just got a little bit heavy handed, in my opinion. I guess I like that that VHS quality is diagenic to it being an indication of when someone is being filmed uh, most of the time without their consent, as we'll get to. But but it is overused. I would definitely agree with that. And this is a movie that does tend to revel in its few visual spectacles. Well, I guess that covers the I think that's probably would cover what we liked about it. I don't know that we could go on too much longer. So uh, that being said, I. I guess one way for us to get into this is uh, to examine the families and the family dynamics therein. So why not start with the Burnhams? That is uh, Lester, played by Kevin Spacey, Carolyn, played by Annette Benning, and Jane, played by Thora Birch. So the Burnhams at the start of this movie obviously seem to be a very overtly dysfunctional family. I It seems as though Kevin Spacey, because he's our narrator, and that's kind of important to keep in mind, this is sort of framing us in Lester's perspective in recounting and observing these events. Lester kind of feels himself to be sort of a loser and uh, perceived by his family to be a loser and uh, seems to be stuck in this rut of them not appreciating him which is as much contextual depth to the dysfunction of the family that we're going to get. So I guess it's the place to start. Uh, but as far as the family and the characters are concerned, not only individually, but as a family unit, what are our thoughts on the Burnhams? Lester is a loser and he never stops <laughs> being one. <laughs> well, I think that's intention. Like, like, I think even by the end of the movie, I don't know if you're still supposed to fully buy his you know, arc, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would 100% agree that he's, I think by, even when he's shot, it's, he's still a sad, (laughs) sad man. He's a loser, Um, like double loser, because like now he's dead. Dude, I would argue (laughs) that he becomes like a bigger loser, like aside from dying, but like, just like, ew, just ew, just like a big ick. Of course, I mean obviously a big ick, but any any man who's what in his forties, even 42, 40, something like that, something 40s, like that, early forties. Um, any man in their forties that's like, oh, I'm gonna change my life, so I'm fuckable by a sixteen year old girl. Ew, jail, one hundred percent. The thing is, yes. it's probably a very very common feeling, and you know. I'm sure it is. And jail. I don't care. That's gross. That is a really funny thing. Again, we're going to talk later about how praised this movie was. When Ebert of Siskel and Ebert wrote his review, he did say something to the effect of, um, 
that it is, uh, he's, he seemed to allude to the, the notion that it's not uncommon for a man to be attracted to uh, juveniles and that uh, it's, it's important to make the distinction between action and thought because thought is involuntary and action is decided. But that's also, if you have a problem with that, which is a problem, then cognitive behavioral therapy is about correcting those connections of thought to behavior. So it's not such a knee-jerk thing as uh, Roger Ebert would have you believe, I don't think. It was also wild. I was reading reviews that were like, oh, the like pivotal, and we'll probably talk about this later, but like, oh, the pivotal moment is a moment of like inaction as opposed to action. I was like, there were so many lines that were crossed. And then the moment that he like pivots is horrific. Like, it's just, I, I don't know. Maybe there's just a couple that I was reading where these writers were just, way, way off base about like what it means to not act on like thoughts that one is having. I was like, I, I don't, yeah, there, yeah. I, I little time capsule, I guess, of movie criticism circa 1999, but I, I strongly disagreed with even the readings of very key moments in this movie. I mean, so as far as those key moments, let's let's talk about Lester then. I mean, Lester, Lester Burnham has this sort of epiphany um, in the first act of this film. He, as we said, feels himself a, a down, an unfairly downtrodden and disrespected member of his family and the world at large. Uh, he has a rather good job that he despises, and uh, he hates the way that he's treated by his wife and daughter. With no explanation for the backdrop or context of that, it's just sort of, we side with him because he's the narrator, and that places us in his shoes in judgment of everyone else. But then has this awakening when he's forced to go to see Jane's cheerleading performance at a basketball game uh, and a girl, a friend of Jane's, Angela, I believe maybe one of the lead cheerleaders, draws his eye in a way that is uh, lusciously accentuated by the iconic flower petals flowing from her chest and everything. Uh, I, I put all that in hard air quotes. But that's sort of the turning point for this character. Suddenly he he is... Because he is infatuated with a high school student, it sort of repositions his his viewpoint on his station in life and the way he's treated by his family, which is a strange revelation. I mean, he sort of has this midlife crisis that spirals into him indulging in his like childhood id of like collecting a car and going back, quitting his job to go back to uh, working at like a low stakes, low pay job without consideration for how that it could impact his family, he, he sort of has this this apophical moment of objective irresponsibility that, quote, frees him. What are our thoughts on all of that? I feel like you've just described, like, 10 other movies, in a way. Like, this is, and I know we're talking Lolita about this. for in, one. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking about this in 2022, so I guess I'll give America Beauty a little bit of benefit, like a tiny bit, because we've had... 20 plus years of films after that came out. But I just think it's such a hard character to buy into for me. Um, And what a creepy, inciting incident. Like a truly uncomfortable, inciting incident. It reminds me of some sort of like, yeah, I don't know, 19th, 18th century play where it's like implied that the, you know, the person of the, the desirable person is like a young woman, child, but like modern productions kind of like ignore that element of it and just cast an adult woman. Just kind of reminds me of like, oh, it's just so creepy and like maybe like written weird and 
I mean, I, I guess like interesting, like visual language that's developed, but she's like 16. <laughs> so creepy. And uh, Mina Suvari at that time, 19 years old, this was one of her big breakout films alongside the same year, American Pie. So uh, an unfortunate career in the sense that she was sort of immediately positioned as a sex object for the male gaze. I had forgotten an aspect, I guess, of the movie where Thora Birch's character the whole time is in many ways articulating what the what me as the viewer is thinking, like, ew, gross, I can't believe this is happening. But it's like the movie doesn't necessarily treat her observations of what's going on with all that seriousness. Like, throughout the whole movie, she's like, Dad, you have to stop doing this. This is gross. And she talks to her neighbor about it. And she even, like, you know, talks to Angela, the friend, about it. And it's like, this is really messed up. This is gross. But it it's sort of treated within the, the movie as sort of a, an inconvenience or like a kind of an inconvenience as opposed to something that is quite grotesque. Uh, but I, I was, uh, yeah, I was surprised. I guess I hadn't remembered that like it isn't a secret. It's like this open thing that like <laughs> he's infatuated with. Uh, his daughter's best friend and she responds to it in a way that's like dad this is fucking nasty and yeah there's no weight to her responding that way because she's jane as we'll we'll get into is kind of a non-character and also yeah the urgency of that is never important to anyone let alone lester and he's our narrator so therefore for us as the audience it's not a big deal yeah and like she's also treated as an object in she's constantly being watched by Ricky Fisk, the night neighbor. And so, right, her character is not fully fleshed out at all. And yet the movie kind of wants her to be this sort of vessel of like reason, but she's, but she's not, yeah, there's just not enough to her character to really anchor down a response, anchor down her responses of horror yeah, Jane is, is is I don't like it, it, she's robbed of any opportunity to to make any impact of 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 meaning on the story in in most ways. I mean, like even in the kind of like iconic dinner scene where we have this this row between um, Lester and Carolyn, it's it's shot almost entirely from the opposing angles of the two of them arguing. We never really get a sense of how this is impacting her as a character. It doesn't really matter when it comes to her finally confronting uh, Angela. Uh, because she's, as we'll get into with Ricky, uh, has struck up this relationship with Ricky and Angela is out of genuine concern because he's been videotaping her without her consent is saying like, hey, this guy's kind of like a freak. And she emphatically is like, well, then I'm a freak and we'll just be freaks together forever. It's like, we've never gotten a sense that she is in any way like really all that countercultural to her surroundings or anything. Like it's not as though she is a quote, like freak in that social sense because she's not developed enough to be a character. There's not really anything that we get to her outside of meeting this sort of a priest of hidden beauty that is Ricky. I just think it's because this movie is Lolita. Dave, you mentioned it. Like, this is what that movie is. Well, the the name Lester Burnham is an anagram for Humbert Learns, by the way. I mean, there you go. And, you you know, the reason why, like, it's obviously not identical to Lolita, but it's pretty fucking close. But the thing about Lolita, which is you know what um like a lot of adaptations have missed about it is like it is like 
the like fuckface is evil. Like he is yes. bad. That's what but, Nabokov was saying. Yes. Yeah. But this movie, if even if it's trying to be a satire of that kind of genre, fails at it so much because these these young characters are not fleshed out literally at all. And in the one moment where you have Lester nearly consummating this middle-aged, stupid-ass fantasy he has, he's a good guy because he doesn't want to take her virginity. Fuck you. That's, uh-uh. That is where this movie gets an, like, an F always regardless if it's trying to be satire because that is just so it makes me want to unzip my skin and step out because it is so wrong it suggests that it's only wrong because she's a virgin not because she's 16 what was insane is that like these reviews i was reading about like all the pivotal moment of lester doing the right thing it's like as you've said sam that is not doing the right thing that is yeah just ick across the board more than ick yeah fucked up uh and i don't yeah yeah it's like lester is like playing football on a football field and and the right thing is the football and he never has it ever and he's just like still (laughs) trying to throw just never (laughs) a total whiff yeah (laughs) air whiff and interesting the way that scene plays out too. In the in the end of the movie, after having pined for her and, and gotten in shape for her, it feels gross to even say. In the end, he, he finally uh, has this moment with her. They have this aside. She's upset because uh, she and Jane and Ricky have just had this row. In which, by the way, Ricky chastises her for being uh, boring and totally normal. Whereas he's, you know, what, a, a, like a 17-year-old suburban pot dealer who, like, is making knockoff Andy Warhol videos in 1999. So, I don't, you know, maybe spare your judgments a little bit, Ricky, but we'll get to Ricky. Yeah, he's having this moment with with Angela, and because uh, be, the only nudity in this movie are two characters that are portrayed as minors. One of the actors, by the way, was a minor, Thora Birch, uh, but... Yeah, the only thing that stops him, as we've discussed, is the the discovery that she is a virgin. Uh, It doesn't really seem to matter that on top of that, she's 16. But Lester's affect changes from, like, erotic objectification to fatherly infantilization, which reduces her to an object either way. What was the goal? What was the goal? Like, what was the mission of this movie? What, What was Ball and, you know, what were Ball and Mendez trying to say? I think that's for me what like gets lost is like, what is your, like satire doesn't work. It's like this character revelation doesn't work. Was it just like nineties, like being blind to like the stuff? Like, it's just like, I could not piece together like why somebody wanted this movie to exist and what they were trying to say. It's about opening your eyes to beauty. That's all around (sighs) you. Obviously look deeper (laughs) or look closer as this movie so often reminds us. Yeah. And if you look closer just, at this movie, you start seeing a lot of cracks. So maybe don't look too close. Don't it just feels so eyes, surface yeah. level. Just so surface level. I think so much of it and Vicky. And as far as surface level, actually, that that's a pretty good segue into a lot of other characters. As we've discussed, Jane is just sort of a device through which to to frame Ricky and to object to her father's advances without consequence. Her father's advances for her friend, that is. We also get 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 these really like just on the nose and like very obvious trajectories for for B plots and like additional characters. Like we have um 
I mean, Angela is one, for example, it's it's kind of like both the, you know, reviled Madonna and horror complex rolled into one that she's very she's very outspoken about her her promiscuity and her, her willingness to um, to uh, sort of empower herself through sex. And then shock of all shock, she's a virgin, like the most obvious shock or uh, Colonel Fitz, uh, their neighbor played by Chris Cooper, who's a strict authoritarian former military guy who is dropping slurs, F slurs up and down, gay slurs up and down this movie. And it turns out at the end, oh, he's it's, he's actually just repressing his own homosexuality because these aren't the most obvious tropes that have been dug into the ground for so long and were pretty outdated in 1999. And it's also just like, did you guys just want an excuse to call people the F slur? Like, is that what it was? It's the same thing when you have movies now where like a white person says the N word. Like, is are you just writing it to, to, to be radical, to be controversial? Did you just want to say it? Like, that's what it feels like. You just want to say these things. I think it, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's tied into the character, but it's because that character isn't written well, I guess. But I mean, like you write the character so they could say that, right? You didn't. You didn't need to do that. You didn't. You didn't need to do it. You. You, you could have expressed that without using slurs. Yeah. Well, and if you wanted to, I feel like the more you repeat something, the more it loses its power. And so this character, everyone who listens knows that we love Chris Cooper. Oh, he's great. He's a national treasure. But it just eventually just feels so toothless because he's just so overbearing, so over the top, so homophobic that you're like, it's one of those things of like, you know, a movie that you know drops the F, you know, says fuck like a hundred times is like not as effective as a movie that says it once very purposefully. And so I feel like it's a similar way of like, it just is over. It's just bangs you over the head with how homophobic he is that eventually you just check out like, okay, you're one note. This is who you are. Oh, wow. You're gay at the end. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it's very superficial subversion. It just sort of sets us up for the obvious, really. Looking back on this movie, it's hard to imagine myself being shocked by any of those turns. And that, I suppose, can bring us into some of the other characters. There's, of course, Carolyn, poor Annette Benning, who is uh, Lester's wife. She's a, a real estate agent. And uh, because she is a, because Lester is our viewpoint into this world, I guess she is just sort of an idiot for buying into not only like opulent consumerism, but also is sort of a fool for wanting to advance her own career and have a financial, have financial security. It's entirely mishandled in so many strange ways. Yeah, her character is really confusing because she doesn't really, once again, I think it's a character that exists to stand in opposition to the men in this movie. Like, like I don't know, she goes, she doesn't really go through her own sort of transformation in any no. meaningful way. And there's some really, I think, played for laughs, comedic moments that I definitely laugh. Because, I mean, Annette Benning, she is a, a gem and a jewel and she can really kind of work it in a scene. But like, it really made me wonder, like, what exactly is her character trying to achieve aside from being sort of this relationship antagonist to Lester? And as you've said, Dave, be this sort of representative of sort of 
90s consumerism and, but also like the sort of the driven woman, but like in a way that feels so kind of just empty and rudder. She's also just kind of rudderless. I, I don't know. It's a very confusing character. Well, and it's, she also is one thing I think I picked up this time was feels like the movie's blaming her for like why Lester's lusting after this child. Cause like, Oh, yes. she's not going to fuck him. She is not like, he's not allowed to masturbate. Like she's like the movie also portrays her as this like very controlling, like with using sex to control Lester or it's, it's like a bizarre messaging that I just don't quite get what they were saying, like trying to do with that angle. Well, it's just that she's, yeah, I mean, she's a frigid careerist who is only interested in, you know, maintaining her furniture. So it's it's right for us and Kevin Spacey or Lester Burnham as, you know, the stand-in that he is for us in this satire that is specifically from his perspective. It, it's right to criticize her for those things, even though Lester engages in a lot of those things himself. I mean, like... That that's one of the, my counter criticisms to people saying that this is that that this is good because it's a satire and therefore I'm not understanding it in my criticism. Like a satire, if anything, is consistent because it needs to rely on that for like a critical vantage point of what it's criticizing. So one scene in particular that always drives me nuts about this and is evidence of how this fails as a satire is the scene where Carolyn comes home and she discovers this brand new sports car sitting in the driveway. It turns out that Lester has decided that he is going to trade in the Camry because she, quote, she didn't drive it anyway, even though that's a financial decision that, you know, a functional family should have a conversation about. And he does this and then says in that scene, uh, it's the car that I've always wanted and now I have it. I rule. So he's engaging in a very kind of like childish, like consumer, like opulent consumerism as an antidote to a midlife crisis, which is, you know, somewhat typical, but also really stupid. But then in the same scene, criticizes Carolyn from, from Lester's perspective when he tries to seduce her after upsetting her uh, on their couch and is holding a beer and is about to spill some of the beer on the couch. And she says, well, Lester, don't spill beer on the couch. That's like a $4,000 couch. And he starts freaking out saying, it's just a couch. So it's kind of from his perspective, therefore our perspective, judging her for like opulent, quote unquote, opulent consumerism. When she's concerned about her couch, while he's not earning any money, having just quit his job and bought a sports car in the same scene. So either it's a criticism of the opulence of consumerism or it's not because either the way it frames it is she's a fool for buying into that, but he's free for doing the same thing. And I guess it's like an argument could be that it's a critique of that relation, that entire relationship that we're supposed to look at these two people who are just speaking past one another, not, you know, living in a relationship that is uh, seeing the beauty in each other, you know, authentic, all of this stuff that it's like, this is what a capitalist consumerist you know, society can do, it can break apart relationships and, you know, to whatever. But because we have Lester, Lester's narrative framework in which this movie exists, it's hard to even take one step back to say, all right, we're supposed to just be evaluating this family unit, you know, the parents' relationship to each other, the parents' relation to the kid, it's just all wrong, but like we can't, at least I thought we couldn't take that extra step back because 
you've got a fucking voiceover the whole movie where Lester's mm-hmm. narrating his entire life. So therefore we're almost pushed to kind of be on his side or like, you know, the movie's giving us his perspective. And like, especially when he's working the fast food joint and then sees Carolyn making out with Peter Gallagher and let's sort of like, oh, you know, she's busted. Like the way that that scene plays out is her ultimate takedown. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't think, I think the movie's also just confused by like, it's where, where it's supposed to be situating the like, the viewer or the audience. You know, if if the goal of this movie is as you're like, as you're watching this, you're like, you know what? All of these people are kind of garbage. Okay, then it works. But really the only thing I wanted to do the whole movie is shoot Lester in the back of the head. And so when we get to that end, I was like, Meh. at least I can be satisfied by that. Because, like, if someone spilled beer on my $4,000 couch, I think that that would, that's, like, an accurate response. Like, truly, I do. Yeah, also, maybe let's not fuck on this $4,000 couch. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, if if you can afford a $4,000 couch and you want one, I don't, I don't see there being a problem. Because, like, clearly she's making money. She has the career. He's the one that's stuck in this dead-end job or, like, clearly they didn't want him. And Dave, like you said, he quits and then buys the sports cart. Like, buy what you want if you can afford it and it's not going to hurt your family. And there's a really big difference between a fucking couch and a goddamn sports car. He deserved to get (laughs) shot in the back of the head. Jesus Christ. Yeah, we're going to get to the end at some point, thankfully. But yeah, as as far as all that's concerned, also, I mean, it it because it is so from his perspective, Christine, as you've as you kind of summarized there, uh, another big part of the problem is that it, it frames Carolyn as the villain while we see his behavior. Like, in what way is it? Are in what rational world are we supposed to side with him over Carolyn? I mean, like, he establish the dinner scene he establishes a threshold of physical violence when she is having an argument with him and interrupts him if she interrupts him he will throw a plate a shared object in their home across their dinner table while they're having dinner and smash it against the wall which apparently was his deci- a creative decision it's supposed to be smashed against the floor he threw it against the wall kevin spacey great guy uh but yeah that scene is like such an I- I- like an iconic version of like uh man he really stuck it to her. And it's like, that's so deeply wrongheaded. Do we have another scene where he is masturbating in their shared bed while she's asleep and she wakes up and is like, hey, could you not do that? And then he kind of points out that he's holding her hostage via the inopportunity of divorce, that he would get half of her earnings. That he, yeah, has, as we discussed, makes financial, uh, impulsive financial decisions based on ego and entitlement. And oh yeah, he wants to sleep with the child and we know that. Like, why are we sympathizing with this character while painting Carolyn as such a villain? And also the movie positions the adult relationships in contrast with the teenage, like with the, you know, budding love relationship between Ricky. I What's Thora Birch's character's name? Jane. Jane. And yet the dynamic, so it's like really in the movie's perspective, oh, look at this, you broken, sort of calcified problem relationship that the parents are exhibiting but look there's still possibility for this 
you know, like budding relationship between Ricky and Jane, but the same problems exist. And the movie is definitely not critiquing the teenage relationships. I feel like the movie is like, this is what, this is what love can look like before it's sullied by, you know, whatever. But the same issues exist. You have, as we've mentioned, Ricky constantly videotaping her without her consent. And then when she at the schoolyard says, please stop taping me, which I was like, oh, wait, is this a pivot? Like, is this a turning point? Like, okay, this is interesting. It's completely disregarded. He continues videotaping her constantly in which, even though I thought that the the movie positioned that as like a, he'll stop filming her without her consent. Am I, did I read that wrong? Does he stop videotaping her or not? He, he, I think does stop videotaping her until she expresses that he's, she's cool with it because he's capturing the hidden beauty of things because she catches him filming a dead bird and says it's beautiful. Oh God, the whole fucking death. Yeah. So let's, yeah, let's get into Ricky too. Ricky's the next door neighbor. That is Jane's love interest. This guy's a nightmare. (laughs) That's it. But yeah, it's like ultimate, he's, he's violating so many, he's, yeah, it's like, he's, there's so many problems with him. All I was, summation of what I previously said is you see echoes of the problematic parent relationship already playing out in this teenage relationship that the movie's trying to portray as sort of an love in its ideal stage. Oh, and you know what? Maybe that might've been the hook for me as a teenager, because like this movie had broad, like Academy, like boomer age appeal, let's say for its depiction of a frustrated marriage. But it also, yeah, perfectly, you know, put the ball on the tee for me as like, well, I'm a teenager and I'm so frustrated observing that and my love is real. So yeah, it's very exploitative of all demographics in that sense, I guess, in its framing. Uh, Can I also just say that one thing that did make me laugh out loud is no dad i just wanted to show her my not your nazi plane (laughs) yeah that's that's right because chris cooper's got a got a nazi plate he's uh he's a he's an ex he's an ex-american military guy who has a nazi plate uh and is also you know a secret uh secretly gay and a homophobe outwardly so yeah you know all the all, all the ingredients are there but uh ricky ricky's an interesting character in in a sense and, and i don't mean that uh in any kind of substantive way but an interesting character to observe critically uh he's he's sort of like the like the ambassador of this hidden beauty right like he's 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 someone who sort of enlightens kevin spacey to like you can smoke weed and relax and that's like you know, you should you should start enjoying like your 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 forties as though you're my age. He also uh, teaches uh, teaches Jane about uh, the hidden beauty of things, which relates to Kevin Spacey's character in the end. We're gonna get to the end again, but um, Kevin Spacey sort of lists off all these beautiful things that are are very sort of like I, I guess relatively universal like human observations of beauty, like you know falling stars or like falling leaves and things like that. You know, just sort of like atmospheric beauty. Uh, but Ricky's version of that is uh, filming dead birds, uh, filming a frozen homeless woman, and ultimately filming Lester's dead body. That that is the beauty that he is uh, is inviting us to become acolytes of. Uh, that is beneath the banality of suburban reality. So that is very strange. Honestly, lol. I mean, I hate to say that it's funny, but it kind of is. <laughs> 
Uh, and to go back to the title, uh, American Beauty is the name of the movie. Like, mm-hmm. what is what are Mendez, Ball, and Cruz saying is American Beauty? Is it the it's not the consumerism of the Clinton era. It's a plastic bag floating in the wind being free. Like, is that what, like, I don't even understand the title of this movie and how it relates to like Ricky's concept of. Well, the title of the movie is uh, a reference to the specific strain of roses that are used in the film, which are beautifully blooming roses, but they are prone to rot at the root. Oh, uh, uh, you see, you see. And that's like a rose garden in the beginning that she cares so much about maintaining. Yeah, and he criticizes her for having, uh, you know, clogs and, and matching clogs and garden gloves and like uh, the shears. It's like, hey, asshole, they're usually sold as a pack. This is so funny because I sort of knew this, but now I'm like putting this all together that Alan Ball created Six Feet Under and I fucking love Six Feet Under. And so I feel like, a lot of these themes like beauty and debt, like all of this stuff are fundamental to what makes six feet under so good. But it's like this movie makes you want to gag, but like all of this stuff where all of the thematic elements are talking about is like, Oh yeah, actually I, this is why I love <laughs> the show. Six feet. So I'll have to like do my own personal journey with Alan Ball's creations and, you know, see how it sits with uh, my dislike of American Beauty. And maybe that would be a sad realization that Six Feet Under is not the great rewatch I would think it would be. But that's just a side. That's all sort of me putting the Alan Ball pieces together. It mostly holds up. Yeah, I mean, speaking of this, the screenplay, there are so many missed opportunities that that could have been more impactful, just little moments. Like, as I've spoken about before, we really have no context for the family dynamic and how they arrived at this dysfunction, whose fault it is, if anyone's. And it certainly isn't interested in suggesting that Lester is at fault for it because he's our perspective. But there's the one scene where he has this exchange with Jane where it's, it's early on into the movie. He says, what happened between us, Jane? We used to be such pals. And she has this really like visceral reaction where she's like, oh, fuck you, man, like blah, 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 whatever. And she storms off. And we're meant to assume and into it from that, that like, how did it, how did we get here? Poor Kevin Spacey, not, is he at fault for any of this? Like, it would have been so much more interesting if instead of like that tell, don't show writing, imagine if like he cited a specific memory that they shared in a time when they were both on good terms. And it could provide us with like some context and emotional depth that's necessary to build audience empathy for both characters. But the film isn't interested in that. But all we get, no, it's like brief. It's like that one moment where she's on the carousel or on the uh, whirly At the end, yeah, yeah. Which provides us zero information and is strictly used as a terrible, terrible device to be like, memory (laughs) in death. And you're like, this is horrific. You're totally right, Dave, though. But aside from that, there is no clues into what was that time period in their life in which their relationship was, you know, somewhat meaningful or that they cared about each other. And no sense of how he's accountable for it because it's from his perspective. There is one moment, though, when they're having this exchange when she says, oh, so it's my fault. And he's like, no, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but he's like, yeah, it is. It's like, no. Um, Hi, you parent that child. No, pal. That's not it. (laughs) That's that's never, 
ever. That is such an unhealthy fucking parent-child relationship. We were pals. No, you never were. And you're never going to, well, obviously you're never going to be because you're dead. Um, but or, or if you were, you have an obligation to ask why you're not anymore instead of just like that surface level. What happened? We used to be such pals. It's like maybe have an actual conversation. Yeah. This movie could have used in that moment. And not make your daughter think it's her fucking fault. Yeah. And once again, if there was like an added layer where all of these like characters that are just completely like miscommunicated, like there's just no seeing eye to eye and no reconciliation or recognition of the other person. If there was just an added layer behind Lester's narration, I feel like it could reframe everything, which Sam, like when you brought up Lolita and the idea that we're supposed to like hate or that like. Humbert Humbert is like a monster. It's like Nabokov even uses that addition. It's like it's like this other guy who writes the forward at the beginning, who and then you see Humbert writing down his own account of what happened. But like it's intentional so that there's this added layer to even critique Humbert's writing of his own story. And sort of you get that unreliable narrator. And it's like if the movie had just like wanted to keep some of its fucked upness and characters, it's like, okay, you got to tell us like what we're supposed to be taking away from the way characters are relating to one another. And like you kind of got to tell us what we're supposed to think about fucking Lester. Poor Alice and Janney. Oh I my had, God, the non-character I that she is among non-characters. had no idea that she was Ricky's mom. I was like, is that Alice and Janney? Given zero to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's like, you know, she's basically catatonic, which is very convenient because then we don't get a sense within the Fitz household uh, that being Ricky, the colonel, is, uh, you know, oppressive, but oppressively homophobic, but also secretly gay father and the mother, because, you know, it's not it, it, we're not concerned with his dynamic with his mother. She's catatonic because of years of assumed abuse or something or that environment. So we don't really have to worry about him having any connection to anything other than his authoritarian father, as far as the household is concerned. It's like if a woman character is not like a sexual object in this movie or a nag. Like, uh, or a nag. She's like literally a lamp sitting in the corner. <laughs> it's like all device, but just choose your own device, basically, is like this screenwriting 101. Yeah, it's a bummer. And so I guess speaking of bummers, that brings us to the uh, the uplifting end of this extremely cruel movie. So at the end of the film, you know, we arrive at a moment where, as we've discussed before, Lester is uh, about to about to commit statutory rape. Uh, and Angela points out that she's a virgin, uh, which rebuffs him, and he becomes more fatherly and, and more caring. Suddenly he's having a second epiphany, which again relates to a child that he's either sexualizing or infantilizing. He wraps her in a nice blanket, gets her like like a cocoa or something, honest to God, a fucking blanket and a cocoa to sit in the kitchen while he talks with her. He asks about Jane's life, and she says, yeah, I think she's happy. You know, she's in love and like, she's doing good. And he's just like, wow, that's great. And she asks, uh, asks him very nicely, and how have you been? And Lester reflects, you know, no one's asked me that in a really long time. I'm great. He sits as Angela goes to the bathroom with a family portrait. He looks over it lovingly. 
seemingly having almost committed statutory rape, but being reminded of his daughter and that being what stopped him or her being a, her being a virgin and that being what stopped him. At any rate, it doesn't matter. It's disgusting. Uh, he, he's stopped and it's it's reframed his brain. Now he's he's looking with fondness, with the underlying beauty that we've been told about, even though we've been told that that's like dead things. Uh, he's looking at his family and is thinking, wow, you know, there really is beauty to my life. Sets the portrait down. And then as the... Uh, the camera follows him setting it down. It pans to pass the roses yet again, pass them to the nice pristine white wall of the kitchen. And then uh, his brains are shot out all over it because it turns out someone has approached from behind and shot him. Uh, now, there's a lot that goes into why this ending is stupid. I mean, at the beginning of the movie, it sets us up for something that doesn't happen or matter. If you recall, the beginning, the very beginning of this movie is Ricky and Jane having one of his videotaped conversations uh, kind of like an intimate, like almost alluding like post-coital teenage kind of vibe or something, is filming it. She is saying that like, I wish, my dad's such a dork and such a sleaze, I wish he was dead. Uh, and Ricky's saying, would you like me to kill him? And she, her, her saying, yeah, would you? Which is, you know, videotaped evidence. That's, it's VHS quality at the beginning of the movie alluding to something. We then establish that he's been filming these things. So then when he's killed at the end of the movie, it seems as though that would come up again, right? But here's the reason it didn't. They were changing the script as they were shooting. And Alan Ball had this change of heart in this idea that instead of having them both go to trial and being framed for having killed Lester, as opposed to Colonel Fitz, uh, who actually killed him, uh, they just dropped that entirely. And instead, what we get is Lester sort of reflecting on his life with this newfound sense of profundity, you know, instead of embracing the midlife crisis impulse to buy expensive Porsches uh, or apparently sleep with the teenager. Uh, now he sees that his family has had true worth all the time, which has been entirely unearned because they bicker through the entire movie. And in fact, the last thing he says to Jane before this is, if you're not careful, you're going to become a real bitch just like your mother. So in that sense, this moment is entirely unearned. But Lester achieves this kind of reward at the end of the movie in this moment, just before he's killed. He, he reaches this kind of enlightenment in spite of the objective cruelty he's inflicted on his family when he realizes that he realizes that after all, he's always loved them. Again, nothing about this movie and character really suggests that in any deep way. And we have no context for the cheerier memories shared or any sense of normalcy beyond their dysfunction. And this concludes the telling. Lester dies, and we do get sort of a sense of where everyone is when he's killed, but it doesn't give us any sense of where it leaves them. Like, he's left their life in complete disarray, and he is allowed to have this epiphany as the person that has inflicted all this cruelty throughout this movie while leaving the people that aren't developed as characters that receive his cruelty via his self-styled freedom in total, like, chaos. Which is such compelling. a selfish way to end it. Well, like, it could be compelling if the point is this is still an entirely selfish, like, right, right. moment of re revelation. And that, yeah, he leaves everything in, in disarray and that it's like a critique of that. But, like, the movie is so happy and satisfied with its, you know, uh, examination of the beauty and the mundane that you're like, whoa, I guess I'm really supposed to take this at face value and believe this character when, or believe the movie in its, like, sort of applause to Lester for, like, arriving at, as you say, 
uh, this epiphany and realization of of happiness. Yeah, and it sort of it bulldozes every other character's arc because the only thing that truly matters is that he realized that there is beauty underneath the things that he's been criticizing this whole time right before he's killed and can't correct any of his be- the behaviors that were part of a cycle of maintaining that bad environment. Like it's, it's, it's kind of faintly ridiculous. I swear it's like some kind of dramatic way of being like, that's life BB, you know, how it's unsatisfying. And also, just in terms of that, I think it, it's at odds with the concept of a satire yet again. I mean, again, people are going to tell me, no, this is good. It's it's just you don't get it because it's a satire. Well, satire is generally pretty cynical as a critical medium. So when at the end, a, a whimsical pseudo-Buddhist evangelizing occurs about the underlying beauty of suburban banality, it stands at odds with the necessary cynicism and unnecessary cruelty of the rest of the film. Exactly. Bingo. Perfectly stated. And it, correct me if I'm mistaken, but the reason why the colonel goes to kill Lester is because he sees him through a window and it looks like his son is giving Kevin Spacey a blowjob. Well, there is that, but there's more to that, too. He goes. That's when we realize that he's been repressing his own right. homosexuality okay. because he goes over there to embrace Lester. I think, I guess it telegraphs in a sense like not only to embrace what he's been repressing in himself, but also a way to bridge a gap between a son that he has pushed away because he outwardly presents himself as a homophobe, you know? Uh, but it just, it, it just seems so ridiculous. Like it feels a little slapstick of like, Oh my God, a misunderstanding through a window. Like so much of this movie is just yeah, like but- comical misunderstandings. <laughs> no, yeah. Connor, you're right. I, I was watching and I was like, this is a fucking scene from Austin Powers. I was like, yes, 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 yes. because of the bad blocking. Yeah, I was like, this is a fucking Austin Powers move right here. Are we for real? Yeah, baby. <laughs> and so like, even like this movie trying to have these super emotional moments, it's like set up as this, this one specific moment is just set up to be laughable. That's supposed to be this huge cathartic moment for the villain, I guess, I guess the antagonist? Certainly an antagonistic force. It, it's comical. So like even this movie, Dave, going back to your point, just undo- undoes itself at multiple avenues in the back half of the film. Yeah, kind of for, it, it becomes too much like, and another thing about satire too, is like, you can't have a good satire that is, you know, from a relatively isolated, like focal point, like one character, one protagonist. But most really good satires aren't that. Most really good satires invite the idea that, you know, other characters can be emblematic of other problems and other other ideas and things, but they have to also be characters. And this movie forgets that. I think this movie fell in love with its its lead character, or the Alan Ball fell in love with uh, Lester Burnham's character. I mean, to the degree that the Burnhams are named the Burnhams because Lester's name is an anagram for Humbert Learns. So it's like they wrote one character and then tried to build a satire around it, which doesn't work if the most reprehensible character is our focal point and then has a rewarding epiphany. And narrative control. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, unless anyone else has anything to add, I guess I'd close out on how revered this movie was and I think why it's not so much now. Um, I mean, okay, so yeah, jumping right into that. I mean, 1999, uh, the year this movie came out, was an insane year for film. Uh, we get Magnolia, The Green Mile, Virgin Suicides, The Insider. We have Eyes Wide Shut, Being John Malkovich, The Blair Witch Project, The Mummy, 
Sam. Uh, the Sixth Sense, Fight Club, uh, Man on the Moon, Office Space. It's a great year for cinema. And the stuff running uh, in the competition for Best Picture that year was uh, the Cider House Rules, uh, The Green Mile, The Insider, and The Sixth Sense, which uh, we mentioned before. All of them, I would argue, better movies than this. Uh, but this movie walked away in the Academy Awards with Best Picture, uh, Best Director, even though it was uh, Sam Mendes' first film, Best Actor for Kevin Spacey, uh, Best Original Screenplay for Alan Ball, and Best Cinematography for Con Conrad Hall, who Conrad Hall, frankly, did a pretty good job. But uh, sorry, Connor, you're going to say? I'm sorry. How did Kaufman not win for being John Malkovich? Like, that yeah. is highway robbery. Like, if you were to open the dictionary to the phrase highway robbery, I think that is a contender for an image to describe that phrase. Like, being John Malkovich is absolutely brilliant. And this movie just t can't even hold a, a match to, to that film. Yeah, one is a, you know, uh, rather half-baked satire, and the other is sort of, like, brilliant madness. <laughs> so... But yeah, it, it it really cleaned up those awards and it really, really took home a lot of stuff. Uh, I don't think it was doing things that were all that different from other movies uh, that were released that year and does does some of those things better. Oh, go ahead. Oh, also I mean, The Matrix really quickly. The Matrix 1999. God damn it. Well, I mean, you have Magnolia, the Tom Cruise's character that's like, you know, male mm. chauvin chauvinism wrapped up in a little package. And that movie handles that character in such an interesting way because mm. you recognize the sort of monstrous qualities in Tom Cruise's character. But at the same time, at least the way, you know, I watched that movie, you also peel back the layers as he's like grieving an ill father and like all of these interesting details to a character that wraps up in a really fascinating package of like, a man engaged or like in this sort of like performance of like masculinity and all of this stuff, like super fascinating shit, uh, which is like common touchstones, a lot of the movies, but when handled really interestingly can be something. And then when not handled well is fucking Lester Burnham. <laughs> Another great example of that is Lester quitting his job. He quits his job in a way that uh, he's trying to extort his boss. And you know, there's two other movies that did that expertly that year, that being Office Space and Fight Club. The difference being that in those two movies, there are actual stakes and consequences for that action. In Office Space, Livingston's ambivalence toward his corporate job ultimately winds up kind of getting his friends fired. And then they hatch a scheme that could lead to prison time for all of them. Uh, in Fight Club, we have rejecting the quote unquote emasculating shackles of modernity and consumerism in favor of one's baser masculine instincts which is just a hop, skip, and a jump from arriving at outright fascism, which is what that movie tells us. In this movie, instead, Lester Burnham quits his job while threatening a facetious sexual harassment lawsuit against his former supervisor, and it's just cool that he does that. That sucks. <laughs> it's also, I think, an affect of, like, it's time. This movie wouldn't exist post-9-11. I mean, I hate to invoke 9-11, but it's... It, it is a lens through which we view this era because this was an era where you get things like American Beauty, you get things like Infinite Jest, both things that I did really like. 
a while ago, but ultimately show their cracks in terms of being pretty outdated conversations in a post 9-11 environment. Like America was sort of this cultural city on a hill, internationally speaking, as far as we concerned ourselves with the world at large, because we had not experienced something like 9-11 and been forced into a reasonable or not reasonable, but a different kind of conversation that acknowledges who we are. There was the Clinton era surplus there was relative, by contrast to today, relatively high employment and uh, quote-unquote affluence. And I think this era was particularly interested in dissecting affluenza under those terms as far as not having a national enemy, as far as not having a threat, as far as not really having a sense of national identity in the sense of being a superpower experiencing excess. And that's just not really a relevant conversation anymore. And I think it's good that it's not because... That's a pretty onanistic and privileged conversation to create a cultural echo chamber around. But it's also just not really necessary anymore in the sense that our cultural priorities and our own international priorities have shifted so much in the wake of that reframing event. So I think that really changed a lot of attitudes toward this movie too in hindsight and not inappropriately so. I I like time capsule movies, like even if they don't necessarily resonate in the time in which I'm watching them. I like movies that are clearly sort of like, yeah, capsules of of a decade or whatever. But like, I guess even this movie didn't wasn't interesting enough to feel <laughs> even like that being a time capsule of a particular era endows it with any element worth watching. Yeah, I guess I, I don't know. Yeah. It just didn't even reach that kind of sort of status of, of movie, for me at least. Yeah, I guess because it is in a sense so lazy and it's repre- so surface level and superficial in its representation of that era that there's not really any depth to be gleaned from it in hindsight, even with the difference of environment. The film though, yeah, as we said, it was an Oscar darling. There are reasons for that too, by the way. I mean, the previous year it was, um, the best winner contender was really, really uh, pretty hotly a hotly contested uh, slot, it would have been uh, among the front runners Shakespeare in Love, which was a Miramax film, and Saving Private Ryan, a DreamWorks film. Uh, American Beauty is also a DreamWorks film. So what happened basically was that Miramax put all of their money into really championing, championing and campaigning for Shakespeare in Love in competition with Saving Private Ryan, which I would argue is a better movie, even though I'm not crazy about it. Um, and it was kind of like a real shock, a big upset when it won. And it was pretty much exclusively because of Miramax's aggressive uh, campaign funding, uh, which, you know, obviously is a little bit uh, of an insight into the Academy's process. Uh, but then the following year, we got the inversion because uh, almost out of spite, they, DreamWorks funneled a shitload of their money into marketing and campaigning for American Beauty by contrast to the Cider House Rules, a Miramax picture, uh, and won. So it was uh, kind of a reversal of fortunes, literally, in that sense, uh, in terms of them both being aggressively campaigned and that being what won them the nomination uh, or, or the prize in the end. And that makes me want to criticize uh, the Oscars in general and the Academy in general. But it's important to keep things in perspective a little bit, because, of course, we could criticize the Academy for uh, concerning themselves mostly with box office, not, not really with box office gross, but with how aggressively films were campaigned for Oscar season because we should be critical of that. 
But when left up to a general audience of viewers over at MTV, at the MTV Movie Awards awarded Best Kiss that year in 1999 to Kevin Spacey and Nina Suvari. So oh, it turns out... Oh, no. Turns out the problem wasn't really uh, like the Academy, uh, you know, aggressively gobbling down, taking their cues from how aggressively something was financed in terms of campaigning it for award season. Uh, Although that is a problem. But, you know, at the same time, if left up to a general audience, apparently that's what people didn't have a problem with at that time. Which to me, you know, is the big takeaway. I mean, we're 22 years out from this movie now and I appreciated it at the time. And if I could go back and give 16 year old, my or like 12 to like 14 year old version of myself advice, I would talk to myself for a long time, but included in that conversation and uh, probably in the top five would be, hey, American beauty isn't as good as you think it is right now. And maybe wasn't in hindsight. Again, if you like this movie, that's fine. But I think uh, just going around the horn, do we think, that it makes sense that it was as appreciated as it was then uh, or think that it should be appreciated on those terms now. Honestly, I get it. And that's probably one of the worst things of when I was rewatching this movie, I was like, fuck, I sort of see it. However, I need names on the people who voted for that kiss for MTV. (laughs) And I have one thing to serve them, a fucking knuckle sandwich. (laughs) Yeah, I get the like Oscar baitiness of it. And how, I think, Dave, you brought up earlier how it can relate to boomers. It can relate to teenagers. Like, funnel your angst into whoever you, you know, you feel like you identify with in this movie. If An you're not a woman. exploiter, yeah. If you're a man and who you want to self-identify as in the film. So I guess I get it. I think it was also just the hype machine just ran away with it, too. I mean, this movie was like, I think it was budget of $15 million. And ended up grossing, yeah, 15 million budget, ended up grossing $356 million to the box office, which in 1999 is like as big as you can get for like a film like that. Huge success, yeah. And and again, really heavily marketed and campaigned, yeah. And in theaters for like nine months. Dipped for like a couple weeks, and then after one Golden Globes, skyrocketed almost 2,000 theaters across the country, more than its initial release, and stayed in theaters for months after leading up to the Oscars. Yeah, and I think, obviously, knowing what we know about Kevin Spacey now, completely mm-hmm. cloud... Like, if already the movie wasn't clouded for you, <laughs> like, that that's the big fucking thundercloud that's gonna come and rain on this movie. And I'm, like, as I said at the beginning, I didn't hate Kevin Spacey's performance. <laughs> and so I, I would wonder... Well, I guess I don't know what exercise like what whether that's really worth an exercise of being like hmm you know because I can't like there's no way removing what I know about Kevin Spacey now from like my evaluation of the movie but I guess like Sam I guess I see it as far as like I'm not surprised that this movie captured the you know audience imagination or whatever the Oscar imagination Um, and it's also hard because I didn't see it when it came out. And so I like, don't think I was fully aware of what was going on in the cinematic conversation at the time. So I don't know. I don't really need to watch it again, I guess. But, but this, but I feel like for this type of theme, it's perfect because it's a fascinating conversation about, I don't, yeah. Looking at these movies that are like 
sort of cultural touchstones to some and being like, what the fuck happened? So much happened in like 23 years. Yeah, the feeling of getting older as uh, expressed through a podcast. Um, So I suppose that rounds out American Beauty, folks. Thank you so much for listening again. If you like the movie or uh, if you uh, disliked it and had thoughts on what we had to say, feel free to send us some messages. We are available uh, via Gmail. That is butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. Connor is nodding and I feel really good about it. I'm going to wave some sweat off my forehead here. Um, We're also available on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You should check those out. Uh, We do have a new theme coming for you soon that is going to be uh, pretty pretty nostalgic and uh, perhaps we'll... uh, will be weighed in on not only by the butter with that family, but with the butter with that literally extended family. So we may have some, uh, some interesting cameos coming up for you folks soon. Uh, until then, does anyone have anything that they would like to plug or uh, anything that they would like to say? Of course, uh, Movie John Podcast Network is a fantastic podcast network that we are a part of and hosts several other great podcasts. So be sure to check them out. But beyond that, uh, any closing remarks or any plugs? Our third Peter Gallagher movie. I believe by my calculations. So, so he is becoming, he, he might be in the top like four of reoccurring actors who've been in films that we've covered. He's everywhere in my life. Cause uh, I think I admitted this on the podcast, but one of my pandemic watches was rewatching the OC and Peter Gow will always be Sandy Cohen in my mind. So he's definitely just like in my life now, pretty much permanently. We'll have to do a month of like impressive eyebrows where we all just pick a Peter Gallagher movie. <laughs> oh, he's, he's coming for he's coming for Chris Evans in terms of the most recurring actors. He's coming. Oh, Sam's no, not happy. He won't because Chris Evans is the real American beauty. Can I just say? Also, <laughs> I, I think that Christopher Lloyd actually might be the the most recurring actor. It might be the most by a food fight. Yeah, I think. What a horrible metric. Yeah. By one food fight, he... Uh... By, by the worst movie ever, he is the most recurring uh, actor in our show. Uh, well, speaking of our show, thank you so much for listening, and we'll be looking forward to seeing you folks next week. Until then, uh, take care and have a good whatever. This has been a Movie John podcast. <laughs>